Good morning again at the Night Street Church. Good to see you all of you who are here today. And also those of you who are joining us a little bit later on Zoom, we, we welcome you um, as well. And so we just finished our, our little uh, mini-series, our little two-part two sermon on some of the practical benefits of discipleship. So I just want to shift our focus to, um, for the next few weeks, we're actually going to be um, looking at something else. Um, the Lord has really been, been laying on my heart to, to kind of deeply meditate on the fruits of the Spirit. And so for the next few weeks, um, we'll be going through most, if not all, of the fruits of the Spirit in our new sermon series, um, A Spiritual Harvest. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with the ideas of the fruits of the Spirit, um, it's based off of Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 to 23, where the Apostle Paul says that once we've been saved through faith, we are now allowed this opportunity to walk with the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit. And as we walk in the Spirit, there are certain fruits that begin to develop in our lives. Um, we see that over here. I'll just read it out for you. He says that we develop, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. So these are the things that we develop as Christians, these virtues, love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control against such things. Um, there is no law. And so today I want to focus on the first two fruits, on the fruits of love and joy. And we're going to find these two fruits uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, uh, verses 1 to 7. But the thing is, if, if we just take a, you know, just a cursory glance at, at Corinthians, one of the big issues that Paul was trying to address in that church is the idea of one-upmanship, one-upmanship. And the idea of one-upmanship is simply the constant desire to have more, be more, or achieve more than others. It's the idea that I try to base my entire self-worth, my entire self-esteem on being better than other people. And so in this kind of like relentless pursuit of one-upping the other person, it's not just about acquiring what other people don't have, but more importantly, it's about securing what other people cannot afford. And so this craving of one-upping another person is actually, unfortunately, what luxury brands prey on to make their money. Um, some luxury brands, are, they're, you know, they're quite notorious for using very mediocre quality materials to create their clothing or their handbags, but they'll charge people this absolutely outrageous amount for these items. And the, and the crazy thing is that people will buy these things even if it's extremely expensive and very mediocre quality. And they do this because their thought process is this, that if I own this ultra expensive bag or clothing or sneaker that most people cannot afford, then I have something that they do not have. I am elite. I am now above other people. If I have this exclusive product, this exclusive paint finish on this limited edition car, then I will be seen. Then I will be acknowledged. Then I will finally be respected. And this is why we see so many people, and Christians included, sometimes we go on this race to have more, be more, to accumulate more wealth, more status, more recognition. And I find it, unfortunately, I find it absolutely insane that this is what the world teaches us, to base our self-worth on being exclusive and on having what other people do not have. 
And so by doing so, you, you actually see that the world actually traps us. The world actually enslaves us into thinking that we can only be worthy if we are better than others. And if this is true, then you can see why this entire world is dominated by feelings of jealousy, dominated by feelings of envy, dominated by feelings of competition. And so if we fall into the trap of this world, into this teaching, if we constantly live our lives in jealousy, envy, and competition, then how can we experience the love and joy that scripture promises us? And so if we're not careful, if we're not careful, jealousy, envy, competition can begin to creep into our lives and can also creep into the church as well, just as it crept into the Corinthian church. Now, I don't know if you guys can see this little comic. Maybe the, the font's a little bit too small. But it's basically the missionary story of one-upmanship in the primitive church. And so the guy on the left, he's like, and then I was thrown into prison yet again. And on the right, that's, of course, the Apostle Paul. Oh, yeah, that reminds me of the time where I was shipwrecked three times, not just once, three times. And so in the Corinthian church, you know, they, they practiced this idea of one-upmanship, but they were more deceptive, they were a little more sophisticated, they added a little spiritual twist to it in order to, make, in order to justify their actions. And so they would boast, they would boast about which spiritual gifts were more important, how, and how only I have this exclusive gift of speaking in tongues that you don't have. They competed for status within the church. They decided to one-up their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. They sought after visible signs of God's favor as a way to say that my faith is better than your faith. And so in response to this, Paul writes to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he writes to them what is famously now known as the love chapter, where Paul presents a radically different measure of value and a very radically different measure of significance. Our lives are no longer measured by status, wealth, possessions, or respect, not even in spirituality, but love. Love is now the greatest measure of our spiritual faith. And so with this idea of one-upmanship and love in mind, let's, let's just take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, verses 1 to 7. If you have your Bibles, uh, you can flip, but it's, it's also up on the, on the slides above. And it reads this. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, which is in the Corinthian church one of the highest honors, the highest gift that one can receive, in their opinion at least. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. As we turn our eyes to the, to the first point of our sermon here, we, we actually notice that in our passage, 
that there's a theme that kind of repeats itself over and over again, that we are nothing without love. We are nothing without love. And this point, um, Shuri, if we can just get to the, the sermon, back to the sermon slides, we are nothing without love. And this point, I, I think it speaks deeply within the context of the one-upmanship within the, the Corinthian church, but I think it also speaks volumes to our contemporary struggles with comparison and competition as well. Even in our own spiritual lives, we kind of see this. In this passage, Paul presents with us three different scenarios where we are nothing without love. And the first one he uses in verse 1 is that if we have the gift of tongues, which again, I said the Corinthians thought was the best gift, but we do not have love, then Paul describes us as a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. And when I was reading this, I, I kind of laughed a little because it, it brought back memories of when I was a kid, you know, like my mom would be cooking and then I kind of like sneak under her legs and like open the drawers and then like steal all the pots and the spatulas and then I'd start smacking it, you know, like ding, 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 ding. I, I think it's like cute, you know, my mom probably thought it was cute for like the first 10 seconds. <laughs> and then it gets quite annoying, right? Because it's, it's, it's just noise at the end of the day. Now, the thing is for kids, we, we cut them some slack because the child just wants to express their creativity. But what the Apostle Paul is trying to say here is that without love as a motivation for our spiritual practice, we're just using these gifts to draw attention to ourselves. We are abusing the gift that God has given us, right? Because these gifts are given to us to elevate others. But instead, without love, we use it to elevate ourselves. And in the eyes of God, that is not only disingenuous, but it is as unpleasant to God as a clanging symbol is to us. But right after this, Paul, he actually takes it to the next level by, by stating, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a, a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. Uh, you can go back one slide. Thank you. And what Paul is, is saying here is that even if I have reached some sort of like absolute, you know, pinnacle of, of my spiritual life, where I have like these like supernatural prophetic powers, right? Like I can like see into the future or, or something crazy. Or even if I understood with, with my vast intellect the, the infinite depth of God's wisdom, and my, my faith is so powerful, so strong, so secure that I can perform miracles of healings, I can move mountains, I can do the impossible. Without love, even if I gain all of these things, it is entirely meaningless. And it's crazy to think about that because these are things that we as Christians want. We want to learn more about God. We want to have these gifts in order to do great and mighty things. But without love, we are nothing. But why is love so important? Why does Paul keep reiterating why love is so important? Because the essence the true essence of God is love. In 1 John 4, chapter 16, it tells us this. So we know and rely on the love God has for us. Why? Because God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in them. And if this statement is true, that God is love, then what Paul is saying here is that even if you gain everything, even if you gain 
everything in the world, even if you become the most powerful, the most wealthy, the most influential, the most spiritual, the most faithful, if you do not have love in your hearts, then you do not have God in your hearts. And if you do not have God in your hearts, then you have nothing. And so the idea that Paul is saying here is that even if we accumulate everything that the world has to offer, we gain nothing if we do not have God. But what about the opposite? What if we swing the pendulum all the way to the other side? Instead of accumulating everything, what if I give everything away? And the Apostle Paul, he also warns against this too. He says, if I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I again, I gain nothing. And I think in the church back then, and even to an extent nowadays, we sometimes measure people's faith based on how much they're willing to give up. Uh, but sometimes, insidiously, people use sacrifice as a, way to, as a way to gain in status, to gain in popularity, to gain in their reputation, right? They would say, look at me, right? Look how generous I am. Look at how much I have given, right? This is the attitude of the wealthy Pharisees that Jesus fought against. This is also the same attitude, if you read in the book of Acts, that Ananias and Sapphira had, right? They lied about giving everything that they had to God just so that they could get the notoriety, the fame, the popularity. These were individuals who wanted status and recognition. But Paul teaches us here that the true measure of our sacrifice to God is not based on the amount of money, but on the amount of love. You see, Jesus did not die on the cross just so that we can praise and glorify him, right? What he did, I admit, is honestly mind-blowing. It's absolutely worthy of praise. Don't get me wrong. But the reason Jesus died on the cross wasn't for us just to praise him. The reason he died on the cross was to restore us back into love, to restore us back into a relationship with our God, with the Father. His death on the cross is measured by how much he is willing to love us. And because Jesus is willing to love us a lot, we see that he's willing to sacrifice a lot. And so if you look closely at what the Apostle Paul is teaching here, you'll see this. Without love, everything I do is actually about me. Everything is me-oriented. I want to have the greatest spiritual gifts for me so that I can be better than others. But the thing is, without love, even if I fill myself with all knowledge, I am still nothing. Even if I give everything away, it's still nothing. Why? Because it's all about me, what I can gain out of this. And so the only way for us to shift away from a me-centered world is by placing love in the center of our lives. And we actually see this and our second point today, the nature of love itself. This might be a little small, I, I apologize, but that's just uh, verses four to seven if you wanna follow along in your Bible. And the nature of love is actually quite clear in our passage. It's also one of the most quoted sections of the Bible where it teaches us, again, that love is patient, kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it's not proud, it does not dishonor others, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, it does not delight in evil, it rejoices in the truth, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always 
perseveres. If you look at this text carefully and closely, and you replace love with Jesus, then everything makes sense. Of course, Jesus is patient. He's beyond patient with our sins. Jesus is beyond kind to us. He listens to our prayers. He answers our prayers, even though we are sinners. Jesus has no envy. He never boasts. He is never proud. In fact, Jesus is so humble that the proper thing he thought of is that I'm going to become, I'm going to, I'm going to relinquish my infinite power, come as a human being, and die naked on the cross. That is, that is how humble he is. Jesus never dishonors others. He lifts up the outcasts of society. Jesus' entire life is not self-seeking. Jesus is not easily angered even when we turn away from him in unfaithfulness. And through his blood shed for us on the cross, he also keeps no record of wrongs. Jesus never delighted in evil or in the temptations of this world, but he always found joy in God. He always protects us from the evil one. He always trusts in the Father's plan. And the most beautiful thing is, he has now set out a hope for us, the hope of eternal life, and he always perseveres with us in our battles. Jesus' entire being is marked by love, whether in the past, the present, or the future. But what happens when we begin to replace our name there instead of Jesus's, right? Brandon is patient. Uh oh. <laughs> Brandon is kind. Brandon does not envy. <laughs> Brandon does not boast. Brandon is not proud. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> not quite sure. Brandon keeps no records of wrongs. That's, that's a hard one. And so, what happens when I place my name there is that the scripture actually begins to become a mirror of my own soul. On the good side, it reveals aspects of me that actually resemble Christ, right? I try my best to honor others. I try my best to seek their good. I try my best to not be easily angered. And I think these are things that I can celebrate and that we can celebrate because I know that in these aspects, I'm reflecting Christ's love. But then there are also things that are extremely difficult for me to do or for me to be. And as you guys replace love the word love with your own name, perhaps there's a feeling of guilt. Perhaps certain memories pop up in our minds where we definitely have not been the most loving. And if you feel that right now, if you feel this sort of guilt, this shame, I, I just want you to, to just keep that thought or to, or to keep that feeling in your mind right now. Just, just experience it for a moment. You know, experience how much that feeling sucks. But as you keep that feeling in your mind, I want to tell you this truth, that Christ has forgiven you. You may not be loving, but Christ is loving to you, and he desires to forgive you. And forgiveness is powerful because what this means is that forgiveness means that we can try again. We can try to be loving again. But Pastor Brandon, what if I mess up? What if I, what if I lash out against my, my family members again or, or hurt the ones I love again? My brother, Christ has forgiven you again. Pastor Brandon, what if, I, what if I don't love my neighbor as myself again? What if I mess up for the you know, hundredth time? My sister in Christ, he has forgiven you yet again. 
And so when we receive Christ's forgiveness and the opportunity to try again, we are allowing our hearts to be soft. We are allowing our hearts to be molded and shaped by the Holy Spirit. And so when we look at these characteristics of love and say to ourselves, I'm not patient, the Holy Spirit says to you, you're not patient yet. Maybe right now at this moment you are not patient, but as you repent and as you allow God to mold you, you will definitely be patient. You might currently still be self-seeking, but the Spirit says, not for long. As we repent and as we soften our hearts and allow the Holy Spirit to continually mold us into love, we reflect Christ's likeness. And as we allow ourselves to be molded in love, we see this final truth of our passage. We see that love actually leads to joy. Last week, we, we spoke of joy as something that we receive as we actively pursue God through discipleship and through the development of our spiritual disciplines. And here we see another dimension, because whether it's discipleship, spiritual disciplines, or growing in love, what all of these things have in common is that it allows us to be in union with Christ. These are all the same exact pathways to becoming Christ-like. And what I think most people fail to understand is that they, they think that becoming Christ-like, it, it's just a command. It's just a standard that we ought to fulfill. They're not wrong, but it's a very shallow understanding. The deeper understanding and the deeper desire is that as I become more Christ-like in my thoughts, in my behaviors, I am now in union with God. I am now walking in sync with my Lord. And when I am in union with God, I'm rooting myself in the God who is the only source of joy. You see, in, in any relationship, there are always rules that we ought to follow. But what brings us joy in those relationships is our ability to connect. It's our ability to come together in union. That is what brings joy in a relationship where we are walking on the same path together in union. And there's no difference in our union with God except the fact that God is the purest and the most perfect source of joy. And so if this is the case, then of course I want to grow in love because by growing in love, I will inevitably grow in joy. It is inevitable because it's like cause and effect relationships. Just like in weightlifting, if I lift heavy weights, I must grow in strength. It is inevitable. My muscles have no other choice but to get stronger. And as I get stronger, I get to lift even heavier weights. And again, it is inevitable that I will become even stronger then. Likewise, as I grow in love, it is inevitable that I will grow in joy. It is an unstoppable process. And as I grow in joy, I cannot help but to love others more. And unlike physical training, where the limit is based on our finite human bodies, the process of growing in love and the process of growing in joy it has no limits because it taps into the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. 
And so brothers and sisters, as, as we come to the end of our sermon, I want to encourage us to commit ourselves to this path of love and joy. We don't do this to earn our salvation, right? This is some, salvation is something that we already have, but we desire to grow in love because our deepest desires as Christians is to be in the deepest union with the God who saved us. And so I encourage you, you brothers and sisters, you know, let us love our Lord, our God, with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, with all of our mind. But I also encourage you to love your neighbors as yourselves. As you grow in love, I'm very excited to see a new joy grow in your lives as well. A joy that is grown by the Spirit and a joy that is a fruit that is given to you to taste and to see that the Lord is good to you. And so, brothers and sisters, why don't you please join me for a time of prayer. Lord, we just want to come before you today and we just want to humbly ask that you will continue to grow us in Christ's likeness. Even if we are Christians our entire lives, we still want to be closer to you. We want to be able to embody your love so perfectly that all other people can see in our hearts is you. Teach us, Father, to love others as ourselves. Teach us, Lord, to love those in, in our family that, that are hard and difficult to love. Teach us, Father, how to repay evil with good. Teach us how to not be easily angered. And Father, I just pray that you'll empower us, that as we make every effort to grow in your perfect love, that we will continue to grow in joy in you. Father, we, we, we trust in you. We trust that you will grow these spirits, these, these fruits of the spirits in our lives as we walk in deep union with you. We love you and we praise you. In your most precious son's name we pray. Amen.